Good afternoon and welcome to the April 10th, 2023 Major Mondays webinar. We're going on an analog to Tashia Rasul's presentation from earlier today on uh, OSIPs and CSIPs, uh, New York's labor law and scaffold law in the context of workers' comp claims. So um, there I am, uh, just a little bit of a uh, tidbit or an announcement before we get started here. Uh, apparently we're having uh, connectivity issues. So this is being recorded while it's being broadcasted live. And so if any of you are getting a choppy slash interrupted video, uh, which I assume a lot of you are, don't worry, there's like a clean version of the webinar being recorded and everyone will get the link to it afterwards. So apologies in advance for the connectivity issues. If you have any questions, you can still put them uh, on the GoToWebinar screen where you have the box on the screen that says questions. You can still put them in there and I should still be able to see those and answer them. But the audio and video might cut out or drop out at any given time. So there is a clean version of this being recorded. Uh, all is not lost. So thank you for your patience. Uh, so before I dive in here, uh, a word on the newly minted Section 118A. I'm sure some of you have heard about this. So this was signed into law effective December 30th, 2022. So this is really the first year that we're dealing with it. What it says is no finding or decision shall be given collateral estoppel effect in any other action or proceeding other than the determination of existence of an employer-employee relationship. And that's a determination by the board, the law judge, etc. So why this matters? It drastically impacts the global defense model when employers have simultaneous workers' comp and civil exposure. The global defense model refers to the, co the concept that while we're defending a workers' comp claim, we might also be defending a general liability claim under certain circumstances, and we would be able to sort of uh, homogenize the findings. For instance, if the claimant is adjudicated not to have a causally related back injury in the workers' comp claim, we get to go in the civil claim and say, hey, by the way, this back injury is not related to our case. Well, not so anymore. Apparently, it's just limited to employer-employee relationship. So it kind of hamstrings us a little bit, but I just wanted to put that out there for everyone. Personally, I'm kind of annoyed by it uh, as to the 114A fraud issue, because we used to be able to hold up the fraud judgment from the board and say, you know, you know, we can't relitigate this issue civilly. You owe me uh, reimbursement and I'm going to get a judgment for it. And now I can't do that either. So I'm slightly heartbroken. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Uh, let's move into the stuff we're all here for. So last month's webinar, uh, we talked about workers' comp exclusivity and we went over the protections of Section 11 and 29.6. That was intended to be a springboard for a more complicated topic today. Uh, the labor and scaffold law. So we went over a couple exceptions too to the concept of comp exclusivity. Uh, common law indemnification or contribution, we need a grave injury for that, we went over that. Um, contractual indemnification or contribution, this is gonna be excluded from every uh, part two employer's liability coverage in New York. Every one of them has that standard C1 exclusion for liability assumed per contract. So as a practical matter, this is gonna be the ins insured GL carrier's problem. Uh, and the intentional wrong C5 exclusion uh, under the Part 2 policy, which uh, is also an explicit exception under Section 11 of the Workers' Comp Law. Um, what we're going to go into uh, partially today is a possible exception, uh, depending upon the facts, for labor law liability. So here's some of the pertinent labor law provisions that we run into in third-party actions very commonly. Um, the red flag trigger on your cases is an injury on a construction site, particularly a fall from height. 
Uh, fall from height means either something falling and bonking the claimant on the head or anywhere, or the claimant actually falling from height. Um, labor law section 200, if you look at a third party action complaint in a construction accident case, uh, they're typically gonna name the property owner, uh, the general contractor, if they're not an employee of either, uh, et cetera. Some subcontractors, if the facts warrant, uh, and then you'll see common law negligence. Then you'll see them plead sometimes separately, sometimes altogether, uh, section 200, section 241, and section 241.6. So section 200 codifies common law negligence. I'll go into what that means in a moment. Uh, labor law section 241 is what we call the scaffold law colloquially. New York is one of very few remaining states uh, in our glorious union that continues to use some uh, version of the scaffold law. Um, I'm sure you can hear the uh, skepticism in my voice uh, about the concept of strict liability for falls from height nowadays. But anyway, um, labor law section 241.6, uh, which is the duty to provide adequate protection and comply with the commissioner of Department of Labor's specific safety rules. I'll go into that as well. Uh, and basically what this boils down to is special protections afforded to construction workers injured uh, while involved in demolition, alteration, repair, or preparation of a commercial building. Labor law section 200, this is the one that I said codifies common law negligence. So almost always alleged right alongside a common law negligence cause of action, we just talked about that. Um, it's basically a codification of the common law duty for an owner and general contractor to provide construction workers with a safe place to work. Uh, we got three elements here that the plaintiff has to show to prevail on a labor law section 200 claim. Uh, note that these are exceptionally distilled and boiled down. It's obviously infinitely more complicated as everything in the law often is. But anyway, um, the bare bones version is the plaintiff must show they are protected by section 200, i.e. they're contemplated as a protected party by the statute. The defendant is a libel entity, i.e. a party contemplated by the statute. Uh, and negligence, because it's a negligence claim. Uh, this falls under two categories. The accident is a result of the means and methods used by the contractor to actually do the work, or it is a result of a dangerous condition inherent in the premises. Uh, you might notice that that just sort of sounds like premises liability. Um, because this is basically a negligence claim, comparative fault is available as a defense. So continuing on section 200 here, um, when claims implicate the means and method of, of the work, which I just went over is, you know, one of the, is the first one of the two different categories here, um, the owner or contractor will not be liable unless it actually exercised supervisory control over the injury producing work. The key word here is actual supervision. General supervisory authority is not enough to establish control in this instance. Practically, um, this means a 241 scaffold claim, which again, we're gonna go into in a little bit will fall under the means slash methods category every time for labor law section 200. Um, for a claim implicating a dangerous condition on the premises, the general contractor may be liable if it has control over the work site and actual or constructive notice of the dangerous condition. Again, what does this sound like? Standard premises liability, right? There's a hazard on the premises and there has to be actual or constructive notice of the premises and it has to be uh, actual proximate cause of the injury, there has to be damages, it's negligence. Um, if the defect is not inherent uh, but is created by the work being performed, it's gonna fall under the means and methods uh, category for a labor law section 200 claim. So 240 uh, parenthesis one, uh, the scaffold law. So 
What this does is it imposes a non-delegable duty on an owner and general contractor to provide devices giving proper protection to individuals performing the work uh, that is contemplated by the statute. This is erection, demolition, repairing, altering, painting, cleaning, or pointing of a building or structure. Uh, again, bare bones elements here. The plaintiff has to show they are protected by section 241. The defendant is a liable entity and the statute has been violated and that violation is approximate cause of the injuries. So this was enacted to protect workers, employees, mechanics, and laborers working for hire uh, on a protected activity. Uh, example, routine maintenance of a building does not qualify. Uh, from height or gravity related hazards stemming from differences in elevation on work sites. Uh, and again, as we discussed earlier, that could either be the claimant falling to the ground or something falling and hitting the claimant. Uh, this is probably the most powerful portion of the labor law because it's strict liability and the language the courts keep using is absolute liability. Uh, it imposes absolute liability contingent upon existence of a hazard contemplated in section 241 and a failure to use or an adequacy of a safety device of the kind specified. And they specify a list of different safety devices in 241 uh, hoists, scaffolds, that's where we're gonna get uh, the scaffold law colloquialism from, things of that nature. I didn't list them all here, but there are specific safety devices specified in the statute as well, uh, in addition to the type of work specified and protected. So continuing with section 241, there's a distinction between accidents caused by a failure to provide a safety device and accidents caused by general hazards specific to a workplace. Uh, this sounds somewhat similar to what we just talked about with the distinctions in section 200. Section 241 does not cover the type of ordinary and usual peril to which a worker is commonly exposed at a construction site. Uh, the defendant must be the owner, contractor, or their agent uh, and be responsible for the work in order for a 241 claim to proceed against them. To prevail, the plaintiff must establish that the statute was violated and that this violation was approximate cause of their injuries. Uh, it applies to either the plaintiff or an object falling with no bright line minimum height differential. I would note that both two feet and three feet have been held to qualify. Uh, and plaintiff's comparative negligence, because this is strict liability, is not a defense. So basically, if it's a qualifying type of project, construction, erection, demolition, things of that nature that's listed in the statute, uh, and there's inadequate safety devices or failure of a safety device also listed in the statute. For a gravity-related hazard, it's strict liability. Uh, Labor Law Section 241.6. So all contractors, when constructing or demolishing buildings or doing excavation connected to these, must ensure that all areas in which such work is being performed are, quote-unquote, so constructed, shored, and equipped as to provide reasonable and adequate protection and safety to the person employed therein or lawfully frequenting such places. Uh, again, this imposes a non-delegable duty to provide reasonable and adequate protections and comply with specific safety rules as set forth by the Commission of the Department of Labor, uh, Commissioner of the Department of Labor. The plaintiff must show they were engaged in one of the enumerated activities. The defendant is a liable entity uh, and the defendant violated the industrial codes of the state of New York. So unlike the prior two sections, we actually have to refer to a different section here, a different statute, a different code, uh, in order to prove our violation. It's almost akin to borrowing, you know, uh, running a red light being illegal to prove your motor vehicle accident case. So continuing with section 241.6, um, the duty to comply with um, 
the commissioner's safety rules, which are set out in the industrial code, is non-delegable. That's uh, 12 New York Code Rules and Regulations, Title 12. Uh, the industrial code provision relied upon the plaintiff must mandate compliance with concrete specifications and not simply declare general safety standards or reiterate common law principles. So you're looking for something specifically measurable under the industrial code that was violated. Uh, as a result, plaintiffs often end up relying on part 23 of the industrial code. Um, a good complaint that alleges a 241.6 violation will actually list out all of the specific uh, violations in the industrial code sections. So therefore, to prevail, a plaintiff must establish a violation of an uh, implementing regulation which sets forth a specific standard of conduct and that the violation was a proximate cause of the injury. Uh, comparative fault is available for this one. And just a little side note here, OSHA standards alone are not a sufficient predicate. Uh, again, we need to look at something that's specific and measurable and concrete, usually coming from Part 23 of the Industrial Code. So, types of civil exposure for the employer and carrier. And we just went over in last month's webinar how mostly there shouldn't be civil exposure for us, but here we are. Um, so, very common in construction cases, a contractual agreement to defend, indemnify, and hold harmless. This takes the form of an impleader, uh, third-party complaint by the defendant. Um, and this is very common because oftentimes subcontractors will offer these types of provisions uh, in offer to, in a, to be able to even get the bid to begin with. If this is not included, it's generally a non-starter, so they've kind of become standard in the industry. Um, this implicates the CGL coverage for the insured due to the C1 exclusion in your Part 2 coverage. Common law indemnification and contribution uh, if there's a Section 11 grave injury. Again, this is uh, death, total loss, or amputation of arms, legs, uh, hands, feet, um, you know, an acquired traumatic brain injury resulting in permanent total disability. Uh, they're listed and the courts adhere to them very strictly. It's all spelled out specifically in Section 11 and you need to be able to prove one of those injuries. Again, this takes the form of an impleter third-party complaint by the defendant. This does implicate our workers' comp and employers' liability policy uh, it, because it is a bodily injury arising from uh, employment. Um, then we also have wrap-up insurance programs. You might have heard them referred to as OSIPs or CSIPs. Um, again, I uh, recommend checking out Tashia Rasul's webinar on this topic from today. Um, some lovely little cross-marketing and, and harmony on the com complex claims department here at Lois. Um, and the exclusivity exception, which takes the place, which takes the form of a first-party claim by the plaintiff against the employer. And I'll talk about what that exception is. So comp exclusivity in the context of labor law cases. So in general, workers' compensation remains the exclusive remedy even where the owner or general contractor is the plaintiff's employer. The seminal case on this issue that you'll see referred to all the time and cited to all the time is Heritage versus Van Patten. Uh, and the labor law violation will not overcome the exclusive remedy doctrine. Um, but there are some qualifications to this. There's no immunity for a statutory employer under Section 56 of the Workers' Comp Law. A statutory, Section 56 is um, the provision of the Workers' Comp Law that says basically if a subcontractor is uninsured, we run it up the ladder of insurance until we find somebody on the hook, usually the GC, um, the general contractor on the project. And so they end up paying basically on the subcontractor's behalf. 
And what this case says is if you're a statutory employer, you're the GC paying on the subcontractor's behalf because of Section 56, you're not the actual employer, you're not entitled to the comp exclusivity as a defense. Uh, the subcontractor, conversely, is still immune, but the GC can gain some of these protections um, if you know they can show that they're partners, uh, it's a joint venture with the subcontractor, there's general slash special employment, like lending um, the claimant to the subcontractor, uh, and then they control the work exclusively. So there are some ways where the GC or some specific fact patterns where the GC can still gain these protections. Um, the subcontractor under an OSIP who does not actually perform the work on the project, but merely provides materials is not a protected as a statutory employer. So just a brief word on wrap-up insurance programs or uh, controlled insurance programs. We're gonna call them SIPs for short. Uh, I don't wanna cover everything Tashia already covered, but uh, the reason these are so common is they reduce overall construction costs because there's no insurance cost uh, factored into the subcontractor bids. Um, they ensure the project is sufficiently insured. They reduce claim costs because there's no litigation over insurance and indemnification clauses in subcontracts. Uh, and they allow defendants to focus on the merits instead of pursuing subcontractors in litigation. Um, so what this is, is there's just one huge policy that includes workers' comp um, and uh, commercial general liability uh, under one big umbrella policy on the project, and then enrolled contractors and subcontractors are entitled to that coverage. Enrollment is not automatic, uh, and they have to be eligible for the program, but um, once that applies, there's one big kitty from which um, workers' comp and CGL benefits are gonna be paid. So uh, similar to the Section 56 issue, uh, it's not the payor of compensation that matters for exclusivity, but the employment relationship. So general liability claims against the worker's direct employer will still be barred. So if they're an employee of the subcontractor, uh, they can't sue their own subcontractor employer. Um, but an action against the owner slash general contractor can still proceed despite payment of workers' comp benefits under the controlled insurance program. Um, the employee will very often pursue GL labor law claims against the owner or general contractor. What's kind of nice about this, but you know, it's kind of a bittersweet win, Section 29 still applies, uh, even though we're reimbursing ourselves, um, which does create global settlement potential, as in, hey, I know you're gonna settle a CGL claim against our uh, OSIP here, um, but guess what? You're not gonna see a dime of that because we've paid you 500K in comp. Alternatively, you know, we can waive the lien so that you'll actually get some money, but you close out the comp case. So that's an example of a global settlement, how that would work out under an OSIP or CSIP. So I talked about how Heritage versus Van Patten uh, taught, you know, is the seminal case on workers' comp exclusivity for these labor law cases. Here are the limitations. So the holding in the Heritage case must be limited to a situation where the employer, uh, where the owner slash employer can also be considered a co-employee of the plaintiff. So what this Chasnoff case said was basically the, the protections of section 29.6 applied on top of the protections of section 11 because you could call the employer in that instance an actual coworker. Uh, they were the sole shareholder of the business. They were the sole officer of the business. They basically were the employer and they were, you know, therefore they were the only coworker uh, of the injured employee. Um, when an employer and the owner of the premises where a plaintiff is injured are distinct legal entities, exclusivity does not dismiss the action. 
Uh, regardless of whether negligence of the defendant is characterized as vicarious or direct, uh, if the defendant is not the plaintiff's co-employee, um, heritage does not apply. We're not going to get the exclusivity protection. If the defendant's duty of care owed, uh, I'm sorry, if the defendant's duty of care towards the employee was owed purely in capacity as owner of the property and not at all as a co-employee, exclusivity does not apply. So what you see in these cases following Heritage versus Van Patten is a limitation to a situation where you can also call the employer a co-worker under Section 29.6. However, the employee cannot circumvent exclusivity by suing the employer in a capacity other than the employer. Example, employer is property owner. So you can't just simply pretend that they're no longer your employer uh, if we have this common identity that would otherwise entitle them to the protections of workers' comp exclusivity. Uh, whether the defendant's duty to the plaintiff as a co-employee is ind indistinguishable from the duty as a property owner, the status of the co-worker as owner of the premises does not negate immunity. Uh, the employer as alter ego or joint venture is still entitled to workers' comp exclusivity. Uh, and some officers, directors, common ownership of two entities, etc., might not be enough, um, but exclusivity may apply where the owner is an officer of the workers' comp employer and, and acting in the scope of their employment at the time of the accident. So the bottom line on a complicated topic. So exceptions to exclusivity for labor law claims are intensely fact-based determinations, as we just saw. Uh, it'll depend on the identity of the employer. Are they an alter ego, a joint venture, uh, an officer of a corporation that's in common with the alleged employer, uh, the right to control and direct the work, the relationship between the worker and the employer, are they co-workers, um, is it solely the ownership of the property that's being alleged in the GL case, uh, all of this matters. Outside of first party defense, there's frequent exposure uh, for the employer in an impleter claim. If it's contractual liability, which is very common in the construction context, that's going to be excluded from our Part 2 EL coverage. Uh, a grave injury common law indemnification claim would not be. Um, while Section 118A impacts global settlement defense model, global settle I'm sorry, the global defense model, global settlements remain feasible in wrap-up wrap programs or SIPs because we still have Section 29 rights. Um, and when an employer carrier is not implicated in the third party action via impleter or a first party claim, the labor law actually increases subrogation reimbursement potential on the claim because we have these statutes that they can borrow for the 241.6 claim uh, or strict liability under 241 for gravity related hazards or codification of common law negligence under section 200. Uh, in construction accident cases where the employer or carrier are not hauled into the civil case, it actually gives the plaintiff a more robust claim, which gives us a better opportunity to recover our lien under Section 29. So um, hopefully that all makes sense. I think I took out the question slide that I normally have in here because I thought we were not going to be live. So I'm going to address the questions now, if there are any, without moving on to a different slide. Uh, I popped out the question box and I'm not seeing any, so um, apologies for any of you that dealt with a choppy video. Again, it is being recorded and the clean version is going to be shared with everybody. Um, if you did have questions and for some reason the system wasn't letting you ask them, always feel free to email or call me, cmajor at loisllc.com, uh, and I'll be happy to uh, go over these topics with you. It's one of my favorite topics of discussion. So. Uh, hopefully I'll see you guys next month and thanks so much for tuning in.